In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the dark holes families can pull us into. I want to make everyone aware of a very important and exciting event we're going to be a part of. We will be featured in the lineup of Podapalooza, a virtual festival to raise money for COVID relief. Think of it as live aid, but for podcasts. Your ticket gives you access to a special Podapalooza podcast feed, where an incredible lineup of podcasters across genres will be showcasing their work. You'll get a festival schedule, and new episodes will drop over the course of the weekend. Listen as they come out, or save the content for later. We've been thinking about how we can make a positive impact in light of the current crisis, and are thrilled to have a chance to do something we love while contributing to this important cause. The festival goes live on April 25th. We'll be featuring a never-before-heard story about the way panic and paranoia can become viral. And there's only one way to tune in. Get a ticket. The money all goes to Give Directly, a nonprofit providing economic relief to the families that have been hit hardest by the pandemic. Here's a clip where they describe what they do and the impact your money will have. Hey, I'm Katie from Give Directly, the nonprofit partner of Potapalooza. Over the last decade, GiveDirectly has delivered over $150 million globally. In light of COVID-19, we launched a cash relief program in the United States, giving $1,000 to families who have been hardest hit by the economic impacts of this virus. So far, we've delivered funds to over 1,500 people. They spent it on rent, food, diapers, and even cable bills so their kids can learn remotely. That's the great thing about giving cash. It allows families to prioritize and spend on what they need most. And that's where the money we raise from Potapalooza is going. So thank you to this podcast for supporting the effort. To everyone listening, check out this festival. Head to potapalooza.org or plza.org for short. That's plza.org. Thanks and hope to see you there. You heard her. Get a ticket. Tickets are pay what you can. Ten bucks, five bucks, even a dollar. So contribute to the effort. Hear from us and maybe even discover some new favorite podcasts along the way. Go to plza.org. That's plza.org. We know many of you will join us there next weekend, but we've got some great stories lined up for you right here. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic.
In our first tale, we join a man who's been invited to a party. Great, you think. Parties are always fun. But this is one of those parties. You know, the type where a neighbor invites you, and they're trying to sell products, and it's some kind of pyramid scheme. But in this tale, shared with us by author Nick Bottick, it's not a sexy underwear party, it's something even more sinister. I join Graham Rowett, Aaron Lillis, Jeff Clement, Atticus Jackson, Peter Lewis, Nicole Goodnight, and Sarah Thomas in performing this tale. So maybe don't agree to buy strange products from your weirdo neighbors. After all, these people know where you live. But even so, watch out for anyone trying to sell you Elite You products. Having trouble losing that last 10 pounds? Maybe your skin isn't as clear as you'd like it to be. Have a goal you just can't seem to accomplish? Maybe you're tired of the same boring 9 to 5 every day of the week. Maybe your boss is getting on your nerves. Maybe you'd rather be your own boss. If any of these statements ring true for you, the Elite You is just what you need. Elite You provides the tools needed for you to become the best you possible. That sounds good enough, right? Well, how about if on top of that, you could help others become the best they can be, all while making a heck of a lot of money? Elite U will enable you to run a business on your time, fill your pockets, and make your life the best life. Contact me to join my very own Elite U team and begin your journey to success today. That is verbatim the Facebook post that introduced me to Elite U. It was posted by a woman named Samantha in the group dedicated to the residents of our cul-de-sac. Samantha lives just three houses down from us and is the kind of neighbor that complains if your grass isn't cut to her standards. The head of the neighborhood watch. You know the type. I read through the post quick and dismissed it as just another in a long list of multi-level marketing, read pyramid scheme, posts I've seen over the years. This one, like so many similar posts, caught the attention of the others in the group. There's ten houses on our street, all cookie-cutter families. All the same people who shared It Works posts when that was the number one pyramid scheme crawling its way across social media. But Samantha is what you might call a person with some modicum of influence. Her sharing of the post encouraged other residents of our street to check it out. I just sort of rolled my eyes and went on about my day. About a week after I first saw the post, my wife Kimmy came home and informed me that she'd run into Samantha at the grocery store, where the latter extended to us an invitation to her Elite You launch party. Kimmy said that Samantha had essentially made it so she couldn't decline, and my wife, being the people-pleaser she is, confirmed our forthcoming attendance. A search online for Elite You yielded no results whatsoever, which my wife and I found odd. We began wondering if this was yet another business Samantha was starting herself, much like the other eight she'd started in the seven years we'd lived there. Our curiosity furthered our RSVP, and that Saturday we walked to Samantha's. The gathering was about as expected. People ate, drank, mingled with the same people they talked to every day, and waited for the host to make her presentation. 
In all, there were the ten families in our neighborhood. The kids all stayed at another of our neighbor's houses with their daughter, who was back from college, and four other couples we didn't know. After a short time, Samantha came downstairs. Her presentation, without boring you, was without question the most vague experience I've ever had. I'll give you the highlights. Elite U is essentially a vitamin supplement that claims to increase brain power and help regulate weight and a variety of other health things. The video presentation she used to show the business model included a literal, actual pyramid. That's pretty much all the important points, but let me include a couple quotes that were used. I work full-time, so you can work part-time. You don't get paid for the hour, you get paid for the value you bring to the hour. I lost count of these platitudes after the eighth or ninth. Apparently, Samantha's presentation worked, because people immediately approached her to get involved. By my count, only my wife and I and one other couple, that we didn't know before the party but with whom we talked a bit and exchanged numbers, decided not to buy in at that time. From that point on, our Facebooks were filled to the brim with Elite You, with all of the people who signed up at the party posting several times a day about how people can join them to start their new life today. It went this way for about two weeks. In those two weeks, Kimmy and I were asked at least once a day why we weren't a part of it, and this is when things started getting weird. I woke up around 3.30 a.m. and went downstairs to get something to drink. I turned at the landing and went down the last few steps and absentmindedly looked towards our front door, specifically the window next to it. I saw, standing at the end of the sidewalk that leads up to our porch, the silhouette of a woman. I'm not gonna lie, it creeped the shit out of me, stopped me dead in my tracks. In the seven years we lived there, there had been zero crime on our street. None. At all. So I didn't immediately react as if whoever was out there was a threat. A few of the women on our street like late-night walks, but I was curious as to why any of them would stop to stare at our house. I opened the door and got a better look, finding that it was Joanne from down the street. I asked her what she was doing, and she didn't reply. I took a few steps closer to her and asked again, and this time it was like she was a robot who had just turned on. She lifted her arm in a stiff wave. Hi, neighbor. You have a beautiful home. Your family is lovely. But are you living your best life? If there is any aspect of your life that you feel could be improved, then Elite You is the answer. I was more annoyed and confused than anything else at that point. What the fuck are you talking about, Joanne? Elite You allows you to work from home and on your own schedule. You can be your own boss. Since I started Elite You, I've had more time for my hobbies and my family. Today and today only, I can offer you our Elite You Silver Package for 75% off, which will put you well on your way to getting that new car you wanted, or maybe a gift for that lovely wife of yours. This is something I'm only offering you, neighbor. And you know what? If you just turn around and sell it to someone else, you can keep the profit and get paid for bringing someone else on board. Are you ready to start living your best life? I very brusquely told Joanne to go home and went back inside, perplexed and irritated. 
I went and got a glass of water, and when I went to head back upstairs, I looked out the window to find Joanne walking towards home, only backwards, and with her arm still raised in that wave. She walked backwards the entire way down the street with her arm up, then disappeared into her house. I was more than a little creeped out after that, and I didn't get any more sleep that night. The following morning I told Kimmy what had happened, about Joanne's wave, how it sounded like she was reading from a script. Her response was that Joanne has always been a weird woman and suggested perhaps that she was in the early stages of dementia, something I didn't entirely agree with, but accepted as an explanation in the absence of any other. Throughout the rest of that day, we had two couples and two individual people from our street stop by to tell us how great Elite U was, how much it was helping them in their daily lives. Christine from next door. You probably can't tell, but I've lost seven pounds. Bill, her husband. Handed in my two weeks, brother. Working from home now. You gotta get in on this. It sells itself. Claire. Samantha's sycophantic best friend. I am so glad Samantha had that party. This stuff has seriously changed my life. I've never been happier. It was just testimonial after testimonial that sounded like they were pulled straight from the non-existent website. And it was always followed by them trying to convince us to join. We tried calling the other couple that didn't join right away that night at the party to see if they were being pressured like we were but we got no answer. At that point, things escalated very quickly. That night, a loud bang on our front door woke us up. I went downstairs to check it out and looked through the window by the door and didn't see anyone. Cautiously, I opened the door and found two things. A box sealed with Elite U shipping tape and a note pinned to the door with a knife. The note read... We know how much Elite U can help, and we love helping our friends. We've decided to offer you the Elite U bronze package free of charge. Still not sure? That's totally fine. All we ask is that you try one, just one, of our life enhancement multivitamins. And if after one day you still aren't convinced, then we'll concede that your life must just be perfect as is. You can just sell the bronze package to someone else and sleep soundly, knowing you helped someone else reach the same happiness you already have. But full disclosure, we know you'll be hooked. Winky face. Your friendly neighborhood Elite U team. This had obviously gone too far. I called the police and prepared to give a statement that would explain pretty much everything you've just read. Two officers arrived and took the report. All in all, they were in our home for about 30 minutes. As they were leaving, though, they walked right past the box that was still on our porch. I asked if they thought they should take it, if there might be anything on or within it that could help them figure out who stabbed our front door. One of them responded, in a voice that was a clear pitch higher than he'd been speaking in the whole time he was inside. No need. Let me tell you, though, sir... Elite U is a wonderful company that has helped me live my best life. It's made me a better cop, a better husband, a better father. You should feel proud that someone you know wants you to reach the same level of happiness. And to get a bronze package free of charge? That sounds like a lucky day to me. Make no mistake, 
The life enhancement multivitamins in the bronze package may not be as good as the ones in the silver or gold packages, but they'll get the job done. His partner then chimed in. His voice sounded normal, but was entirely monotone, devoid of any kind of inflection or emotion, like someone was typing in the words and he was saying them as he went along. Thank you for calling us, sir and ma'am. We will be looking into this matter. We assure you that we will investigate any leads that we may come across. If we have any questions, we will reach you at the numbers you have provided us. If you have questions for us, you can reach us at the numbers provided on our business cards. We will keep you safe. Thank you. Just then, both officers put up their arms in the same stiff waves that Joanne had done, and both walked backwards to their car and reversed down the street. Naturally, our visit with them didn't make us feel any safer. Quite the opposite. Later that night, around 2 a.m., both my phone and Kimmy's began frantically going off. Text messages, Facebook posts, tweets, Instagram DMs, phone calls from everyone on our street asking if we'd tried the Life Enhancement Multivitamins and if we were ready to start living our best lives. That irritated me to no end. And it was at that moment that everything, all the weird shit from the past few weeks, came to a head. I went into the garage and got a can of gasoline. After also grabbing a piece of paper and a lighter, I walked out to the porch, picked up the Elite U box, and brought it to the middle of the cul-de-sac. Doused it in gas, lit the piece of paper on fire, and dropped it on the box, which burst into flames. I then, in my state of heightened anxiety and irritation, began yelling about how everyone who wants us on their shitty pyramid scheme bullshit could fuck off. How if anyone else approached us about it, there were going to be problems, etc., etc., etc. Not a single light in any house on the street turned on. The box stayed ablaze for a short time, but eventually died out, during which time I'd gone up to bed, though I had no intention of actually sleeping, and with good reason. About an hour after my dumbass had lit a box on fire in the middle of a residential street, we heard a number of voices, all in unison. You have chosen to not become involved with the life-changing business that is Elite You, and that's okay. I jumped up from the bed and looked out the window down at the street and saw everyone from our block, roughly 30 to 35 adults and children, standing there in a kind of half-circle towards the end of our driveway. We understand your hesitancy, but we cannot forgive it. We live elite lives and cannot be expected to share them with those who refuse to answer their call to greatness. You will now be exterminated. Your chance at an elite life will go to some other lucky person. As the last words simultaneously left their lips, they all began briskly walking towards and around our house. At this point, Kimmy was already awake, and I told her to grab her phone and come downstairs with me. We made our way down to the basement as Kimmy called the police. We told them a large group of people was attempting to enter our home and that several units would be needed. We also said that they were holding signs, but we couldn't see what they said, were chanting something we couldn't make out, and were waving around torches, none of which was true. The reason for the exaggeration of an already crazy situation is that we live in a small town. 
If ever there are more units needed than the local police can accommodate, they send in the sheriffs, who we hoped there was a chance might not be on the elite U train. The 911 operator contacted the sheriff's station while we were listening and sent them to our home. Kimmy went to the corner with a number of knives and a large can of pepper spray while I got my cordless nail gun that I'd long since modified because I do dumb shit when I'm bored sometimes. Suddenly, all the sounds upstairs stopped. Then came a voice from above us, a voice that sounded like someone trying to imitate someone else but doing a poor job. Hey guys, it's Ben Brunner. Remember me? We met at the party. My wife and I were the only people besides you guys to not opt in to Elite You right away. Let me tell you, that was a huge mistake. Elite You is amazing. It's undeniable. I only wish I would have signed up right away. It would have been a much better choice for my family and me. Come on out and let's talk. I positioned myself at the bottom of the stairs with a nail gun and waited. After only a moment, the knob to the door at the top of the stairs began to rattle. Soon after that, the wood started splintering. Once a hole big enough allowed for it, an arm reached through and began feeling around for the deadbolt and doorknob locks. I took the opportunity and sprinted up the stairs and began slamming the nail gun into the arm and eventually got the hand nailed to the door itself. I jumped back down to the basement floor. Luckily, our basement door is pretty heavy duty, so taking it off the hinges wasn't an immediate worry, and we also learned then that they could feel pain. What I didn't anticipate was when whoever was connected to that arm stopped screaming and I heard the locks click. Then the basement stairs began to creak. Elite you regrets not being able to bring you on as an elite salesperson. Before long, several of them were piling into the basement. Men, women, and children. I started shooting nails at the adults, and a few in each were able to make them withdraw in pain. Elite <laughs> you will save me. The kids started charging us, but, and I'm not exactly proud of this, they were easily taken out by punches and pepper spray. A few more of our neighbors came down the stairs, but were quickly subdued with nails and mace. Police! Everybody drop what's in your hands and stay where you are. Clear. Police! Anyone down there, put your hands up. We did. I immediately let them know that we were the owners of the house and the ones who called. Officers continued coming downstairs, zip-tying the hands of the people we'd dispatched and getting whatever weapons they had away from them. The police confirmed who we were, and shortly thereafter we were led upstairs, and through the tears, pepper spray doesn't only affect those on which it's employed if it's used in an enclosed area, we saw an absolute mess of carnage. Whoever the arm belonged to that reached through the hole in the basement door had been removed from it, and the appendage still stuck to the door, only now it was hanging, dripping blood, having been hacked off by someone not patient enough to figure out another solution. Our house was littered with bodies and absolutely destroyed. Walls were torn down. Every item not nailed down was thrown around and broken, 
two ceiling fans were ripped out. Next to the basement door, slumped against the wall, was a dead man with the face of Ben Brunner tied over his own. It was absolutely goddamn horrific. Stepping over bodies, we went outside, where the corpses of the two officers who had come earlier that day were splayed across the walkway leading up to our destroyed home. Ambulances and fire trucks had all begun convening at the end of the cul-de-sac as we were taken to the police station. That was three days ago. We haven't yet been made aware of what exactly was in the Elite U products, but we did learn that 19 of our neighbors, fathers, mothers, and children, had been killed. The rest were in police custody, be it in a hospital or jail. We also learned that the Brunners had been killed inside their home about a week prior to the attack on us, with Join Elite You Now to Start Living Your Best Life smeared in blood on their bedroom wall, the faces of them and their children removed and used for the raid on our house. We have about as many answers now as we did before we were attacked, and I don't know how far Elite U spread before this happened or if it was just contained to our neighborhood and the people at the party. This has been long, but before I wrap it up, I just want to say I don't know how we could have avoided this. I feel like even if we wouldn't have gone to the party, everyone still would have been pressing us to join. They were hypnotized, brainwashed, something. Just, if you see Elite You come across your Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, unfriend them. Do whatever you can to stay as far away as possible. Climate change. It's a scary prospect. The forces of nature pointing out the folly of man. But what's even scarier than climate change is climate change caused by a massive hole. In this tale, shared with us by author Kenneth Cole, we find out what happens when a group of documentarians carelessly leave a mysterious pits uncovered. Performing this tale are David Alt and Erica Sanderson. So join us as we experience the effects of extreme weather and the dangers of uncovered chasms, at least when that uncovered chasm is the Cola Borehole. I peered over the edge as I had done so often before. Lots of people came from great distances to see it at first, but a decade after it happened, the number of spectators had dwindled to just a few, and eventually none, save for the occasional passerby. Of course, the planet's population had also diminished significantly. Those who were spared instant death died slowly from the cold or lack of food or victims of them. You know, them.
It wasn't my fault. I know that's what you're thinking. A lot of people blamed me at first. Most of them are dead now. But think about it. A hole to hell? Right there under your feet? What man could resist just peeking? The Kola Superdeep Borehole was the result of a scientific drilling project of the Soviet Union in the Pajensky district on the Kola Peninsula. The project attempted to drill as deep as possible into the Earth's crust. Drilling began on the 24th of May 1970. Several holes were drilled, all branching from a central hole. The deepest reached 12,262 meters in 1989 and was the deepest artificial point on Earth. The borehole was only 23 centimeters in diameter. The hole reached its deepest measurable point in 1989. The hole depth was expected to reach 13,500 meters by the end of 1990, but never did. Officially, the drilling effort was abandoned because of higher-than-expected temperatures, 180 degrees centigrade instead of the expected 100. Unofficially, well now, that's a different story. A lot of unexpected discoveries arose from the project. Water where none was anticipated, pockets of hydrogen gas where it should not have existed, geophysical discontinuities that flew in the face of everything seismologists had previously predicted. On St. Valentine's Day in 1990, however, came the most shocking discovery of all. Life. Nearly 13,000 meters under the Earth's crust at temperatures of 180 degrees centigrade. Nothing should have been able to live in those conditions, and yet, there it was. Just plankton, but still life. It should have been heralded as the scientific breakthrough of the century, but instead, within two weeks, the drilling equipment had been removed and the borehole capped with a steel plate bolted in place and then welded shut for an extra degree of added security. <sighs> Why hadn't we been more suspicious at the time? There were many theories and legends that were batted about. The one that made the most sense was that scientists were afraid of contamination. After all, this was an entirely new species that no one or no thing on Earth had ever been exposed to. Other legends were more laughable. There was a tall tale that the tormented screams of the damned could be heard through the opening of the Well to Hell. I should admit that rumor was possibly rooted in some truth, as I didn't doubt that strange sounds would emanate from a hole that deep with who knows what bubbling at the bottom. Tormented screams, though, I don't think so. Still, like I said, who could resist finding out for himself? Some colleagues and I were exploring the old ruins of the abandoned project site while filming a documentary. We had hoped to find some grand spectacle, but instead, after pushing aside a bunch of scrap and garbage, we found the tiny 23-centimeter plate sitting flush with the ground, rusted and barely distinguishable from the rest of the debris. We were disappointed, to say the least, but honestly, what more could there have been to see? 
Out came the rumours and stories, retellings of all the old legends, and then we got the crazy idea to open it up, remove the cover and listen for ourselves. One of my colleagues retrieved his toolbox from our vehicle and set it down next to the plate, ready to get to work. It was probably a fool's errand. Who'd have thought that we could actually open it after all that time? (laughs) It turned out that the rust and the extreme cold had made it easier for us. A couple of the bolt heads cracked off instead of unscrewing, and then, startling us all, the entire plate flew off. The weld must have been weak or compromised by the elements, perhaps even affected by what was inside. There was a gust of air that erupted from the borehole as the plate came off. Pressurized gas, no doubt. Using a torch, we looked down, but of course saw nothing as the hole dwindled off beyond the reach of our light. Then we each took a turn crouching and putting our ear near the opening to hear what we could perceive, if anything. I'll admit that when it was my turn, I did hear strange noises emanating from the hole. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. Uh, That was it, though. A short, cheap thrill. We finished our work and left, never even bothering to make an attempt at sealing the opening back up. (laughs) What was the point? And then it happened. In the dark morning hours of the 19th of January 2020, a series of unfortunate events occurred. A perfect storm, if you will. You see, as years passed, rain and snowmelt trickled down into the borehole. Lots of it. Given the sheer volume of the hole, it probably only filled a small part of the cavity, but got stopped up somewhere. There was a minor tremor that morning, not even what one would call an earthquake, but it was enough to dislodge whatever it was that was holding back the water. Apparently, the water came in contact with the heated rock deep inside the hole and vaporized. Like a volcanic eruption, the resulting explosion wreaked heretofore unimaginable devastation. Scientists have calculated that the kinetic energy released from that hole was equal to over 1,000 times that of the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. Uh, Try to imagine a 10,000 megaton bomb. (laughs) It should go without saying that it was on par with an asteroid impact, a dinosaur killer. Magma, ash, and steam burst from the bottom of the borehole, widening the hole to a staggering six kilometers across and God only knows how deep. Some of the debris was being ejected with such force that it flew right out of the Earth's atmosphere and went into a low orbit. Most of it rained back down, not just near the site of the eruption, but every part of the planet. And when I say debris, I am referring to chunks of rock from the size of a flake of ash to as large as a two-story house. Within the first few minutes after the event, the debris had created a weather radar signature with a field large enough to be seen halfway around the planet. Every structure within 24 kilometers of the pit was instantly vaporized by the heat and everything within the next 50-kilometer radius was reduced to rubble. All that material joined the debris field, 
Once the largest pieces had rained down destruction on the planet and its inhabitants, then came the next insidious step in Earth's destruction. What was left surrounding the planet formed a barrier, allowing the sun's gamma rays in but preventing them from leaving the atmosphere. It was global warming taken to the extreme. The atmosphere of the planet heated until it was like the inside of an oven triggering forest fires and cooking everything that wasn't sheltered underground. The light of the sun was blocked out for approximately a year or so. Without sunlight, most of the Earth's plant life on land and in the sea died. In addition to the impacts on the planet's climate and life, some scientists held to the belief that the force of the explosion may have influenced the dynamo mechanism at the Earth's core, causing it to wobble. The core is responsible for providing the planet's magnetic field, and once that was crippled, the Earth was even more exposed to the sun's harmful gamma rays. We survived, though, those of us who had the luxury of having an underground bunker in which to ride out the worst of it. Then, as if to add insult to injury, things got worse. Then came the cold. When most of the solid debris dissipated, all that remained in the stratosphere was ash and soot left over from the fires. This fine dust had the opposite effect of the debris, shielding the planet from our star's heat. Like nuclear winter, the skies lightened a bit, but the temperatures grew colder. We called it the twilight, a severe and prolonged global climatic cooling effect. It has been 15 years as far as I can remember. I lost track of time long ago, and the twilight hasn't relented yet. It was so easy to get mesmerized when looking into the hole. Your eyes could follow the steep face down the side for only so long until you could only see blackness. I calculated that when I looked down, I could probably see about one to one and a half kilometers down. After the magnitude of the event, though, one could only guess at the actual depth. No one had ever actually found out. Not that there weren't expeditions over the years, but once someone went down into the pit, they never came back. Shaking myself free of the captivation, I realized that I needed to start my hike back to the old apartment complex where I had taken up residence. It wasn't much. Most of it had been destroyed, but it was close to the hole, and that is where I needed to be. That is why I had come to this godforsaken place after all, wasn't it? For research? There was not much else to do in this new world except look for ways to make it better make life easier. I knew that fixing the climate was not a task that humans would ever accomplish, but I thought that perhaps I could, well, let's just say, come up with an answer to the other problems. I did not want to spend the night in the wasteland. There was not much between the hole and what remained of the nearby city, so Every night between the two places meant a night spent on flat, icy plains. No trees, no rocks, no shelter of any type. The best a person could do was to dig a hole, ironic, I know, 
and climb into it, covering yourself over with some of the soil to keep you warm until the next day. Things weren't so bad in the beginning. We had generators, vehicles, power and heat, all provided by petrol or diesel fuel. But petrol goes flat after a while. There was always a plentiful supply, it just uh, stopped working after a while. You see, what makes petrol an ideal fuel is that it vaporizes readily to form a combustible mix with air. The longer it sits around, the more of the volatile elements waft away until you end up with a gummy, useless liquid that will not burn. Even when the gas was still in its prime, it didn't do much good in the way of vehicles. Sure, it would get you from point A to point B, but once you got out into the open wasteland, they became useless too. The Siberian tundra, already bitterly cold, was made even worse by the twilight. On a windy day, <laughs> and they are all windy now, aren't they? The temperature could drop so low that the rubber tires of the cars and the vans became brittle. Brittle enough to shatter. Our community lost more than a few brave souls who had set out into the wasteland only to break down too far from anything to safely walk back and froze to death. So I checked my compass, happy that it still worked and that the liquid inside had not frozen. Without it, every direction looked the same. There was no sunrise, no sunset, no high noon to guide myself by. I set off in a southeasterly direction toward the ruined city that I had made my home. I suppose that it had a name, but by that point, names didn't matter anymore. Stick-built houses would have had no chance of surviving the initial explosion, and what did remain deteriorated quickly in the extreme climate afterward. Fortunately, the post-war Soviet-era construction effort left plenty of solid structures whose durability made up for their lack of beauty. My apartment building, the tallest that remained in the derelict city, had a huge gash across its middle, about five stories up. I had selected the tallest building that I could find and chose an apartment on the highest floor that I considered to be structurally safe to avoid. Well, for obvious reasons. Consisting of plain, grey, reinforced concrete, the building was roughly U-shaped. Looking at it from the open end of the U, the three lowest levels were a series of simple arches fronting what used to be offices and shops. The entire building appeared segmented in blocks, and it is very possible that each apartment was prefabricated and assembled on site. I doubted it, though. Given its height and the fact that it was still standing, it had to have been fairly sturdy. The apartments sitting above the lower levels all looked the same. The Soviet architects had wasted no effort on originality. Each apartment had a balcony running its full length of about 30 feet, most of the railings bent and twisted out of shape. Behind them were rows of windows, all the glass broken out now. My apartment was on the eighth floor. No lifts, obviously, and even the shafts were blocked, which made for a good defense. The staircases were also blocked with a lot of rubble. That meant slow moving for me, but also for anyone or anything else trying to come up. 
I occasionally rotated which apartment I occupied since there was no working sewage system. Uh, gravity helped stuff go down, but once the pipes backed up, well, <laughs> time to move on. It's not like I didn't have a practically unlimited choice of other apartments. I picked my way through the debris without even thinking of how much noise I was making. The cold air suppressed sound and did not allow it to travel very far. By the time I had reached the eighth floor, most of the corridors were sheltered from the wind and it was a little easier to hear. Still, I had not seen any living thing for months and had got sloppy. I was making my way toward two doorways at the end of the hall, both halfway choked with piles of broken concrete, when I heard a sound. The best that I could describe it was a cross between a, a turkey's gobbling and a sort of slurping sound. I knew that this would be a new one, but I had come too far to turn back. All I could do was pray that it wasn't too nasty. Prayer hadn't been much of any considerable benefit in the last twenty years or so, so I did not expect much help now. From the sound of it scrabbling among the bricks, I could assume that it was bigger than I was. Not that size mattered, some of the worst ones were small. I did mention them, didn't I? Yes, them. They were also an unfortunate after-effect of the devastation caused by my ignorance that day. You see, in addition to the magma and debris that came from the borehole that fateful day, the plankton was also spread across the planet. Already used to living in the harsh conditions, it apparently survived the explosion and piggybacked along with the steam and fragments of rock covering the globe. Only it wasn't plankton, not really. The scientists had called it that, but perhaps it was just to avoid having to explain its real biological makeup. Or perhaps it was to allay any fear that news of it may have caused. Plankton was a very simple term for it. Like the plankton that existed in our oceans, it was a soup made up of a variety of small organisms most unlike anything that our scientists had ever seen before. The results of initial tests with them were kept top secret, but I believe that whatever it was the scientists found scared them. As I mentioned, the hole was sealed off just a short time after the discovery of the creatures. Signs that the organisms had survived the blast began showing up during the global warming phase of the planet's recovery. At first, they began showing up in water sources around the world at the microscopic level, then became large enough to see with the naked eye. I am unsure if it was the global warming that caused it, the additional radiation seeping through the atmosphere, or if it was just in their inherent nature, but the creatures began mutating and evolving rapidly, faster than the evolution of anything previously on Earth. The degree of evolution that these strange organisms went through in a year's time was the same as all current life as we knew it took from its development as single-celled plant life all the way to the most advanced form, human beings. <laughs> or at least it had been human beings. 
People first began noticing new molds, and then creeping, crawling forms of slime. Smaller creatures, similar to those found in the deepest parts of our oceans, began to form, and were soon able to leave the water and flourish on dry land. Larger and larger creatures in all forms, all strange and hideous, began showing up. New monsters appeared every day. People like myself were spared the large part of exposure to these when we moved up into the colder climes, but we still saw our share of fiends, as evidenced by these new turkey things I had found in my apartment. These creatures had surely evolved beyond that which we knew as the master of all animals now, humans. These things thrived in the Earth's current condition. Now they were conversing. That was proof. I was caught between a rock and a hard place. My go-to weapon was a hardwood baseball bat, which usually did the trick, but at that moment, it was leaning against the wall just inside the apartment doorway. I had my pistol with me, but cartridges are a rare commodity and had a high value. Not worth my life, of course, but I was down to half a box and did not want to waste any if possible. In some cases, bullets would be useless against these things anyway. So I picked up a fair-sized piece of rubble, and made my way as silently as possible to the door. I peered against the edge to assess the intruder. I had been correct on multiple counts. It was turkey-like, it was big, and the slurping was the sound of it sucking down the last of my precious corned beef hash, five crushed tins of it on the floor around the beast. It looked almost humanoid, bipedal with two arms, it had long, bony fingers on its hands, only four on each, though. Even its head looked almost human. It had a small nose and deep brown eyes, tiny ears. That is where the resemblance ended, though. The creature also had a wattle on the top of its head. It hung over its forehead and into its face... Technically, on a bird, this would probably be a snood, as wattles are usually below the neck. Nevertheless, it reminded me of a turkey. Its skin was also wrinkly and pocked, also like a turkey. As it sucked the last of my hash out of a tin, I noticed that in place of teeth, it had two bony plates, one upper and one lower, set into its jaw. It was a thoroughly disgusting creature, the worst I had seen yet, perhaps because it was so humanoid. As soon as the thing's back was turned toward me, I made my move. I threw the chunk of concrete into the room toward the farthest corner from myself. The creature turned to look at where the sound had come from, and I lunged inside the doorway and grabbed my bat. I suppose I could have just run away at that point, but I would be damned if I was going to leave all my possessions and move on. I had just gotten settled in this new apartment and I intended to stay a while. So, instead of running away, I ran toward the monstrosity, bat raised high above my head and screaming like a madman. I don't think that it was going to put up a fight at all. In retrospect, I believe that I could have just screamed and it would have been scared away. Unlike some of the others, this one seemed timid. 
Nevertheless, at the time I acted on all the instincts that I had learned since the twilight took over. I stopped just short of an arm's length away from the creature. By then it had given up looking for the chunk of concrete and turned to respond to my bellowing. I briefly looked into its eyes as the bat came down. I put my all into it, grabbing the handle with two hands. The thing dropped to the floor. It was dead. No doubt about it. There was not much blood, but it had loosened its bowels all over my floor. Oh god, it stank. Time to move again. What bothered me most, however, had been the look in its eyes. Then I heard it. At first, it excited me, but as soon as I realized it for what it really was, I became terrified. Voices coming from my kitchen. Two people having a conversation, only not in English and not in any human language I had ever heard. The phonemes were guttural, the speech slurred, and most unfortunately it had a turkey-like gobble mixed in between the other sounds. As I listened carefully though, it was blatantly obvious that they were conversing. They were not just making noise. My earlier screaming had given away my presence, and the voices moved towards me. They rounded the corner into the living room. Sure enough, it was two more creatures resembling the one I had killed. They were not as placid, though. They glanced at the dead beast on the floor, then turned their attentions toward me. They looked angry, very angry, and began to charge. This time... I chose to run. I knew the landscape better and my feet were nimbler. I leapt over obstacles in my path as they had to go either through or around them. I was out of the apartment and into the stairwell before they had even made it to the door. Instead of running outside, I chose to re-enter another of the building's halls a couple of stories down and ducked into one of the apartments. Most of the doorway's frame had been cracked, and I had to crawl on my stomach to get into the room. If the things had somehow figured out where I was, they would have a lot of difficulty getting in, and from my position, I could easily get in a kill shot as they crawled through the entrance. I laid as still as I could in my hiding place, careful not to shift any rubble or debris. I shielded my mouth in the crook of my elbow so as not to give away my position with the cloud of condensation as I exhaled. I could only hope that their sense of smell, or perhaps some other unknown sense, was not honed enough to detect my location. I waited. It seemed like hours, but it was probably only thirty minutes or so. I had decided to give it a go and poke my head out of the opening in the doorway, certain that I was safe, when I was startled by a sniffling sound coming from behind me. I flipped over and shuffled away from the door until my back struck the apartment wall. I was completely exposed, but I knew that I had no other option but to remain as still as I could. I was completely exposed. The cold air pricked my skin. I'd been outside for a long time and was looking forward to sitting near a smouldering fire until I had thawed out. Then I heard it again. (laughs) 
It was not my imagination. I listened closely. I could swear that it sounded like a human being crying. But they could be deceptive in that way. I don't know if it was their natural design or by accident, but they had many qualities that allowed them to fool humans into dropping their guard. That was usually a mistake. Survivors like me learnt to doubt everything. I watched in horror as the thing hooked two sets of bare, pink fingers over the edge of a dilapidated couch. Then a shock of matted red hair began to rise, and then... <gasps> I almost screamed, not in fear or dismay, but in shock. It was a girl. A human girl. She looked to be in her late teenage years with red hair and green eyes. She stood about five feet tall and was very slim, but with the shortage of food, everyone was now underweight. Shockingly, she was stark naked. How could she stand the cold? Frostbite should have set in within minutes. I wondered where her clothes were. She looked at me and obviously felt as confused as I did. It was as if she had never seen another human being before. She looked at me, then at her own hands, spreading and wiggling her fingers, then down at the rest of her body. I think it was only then that she realized she was naked. I leapt up and stripped off my coat, moving toward her to cover her up as soon as possible. She seemed terrified of me, but had nowhere to go, so I was able to corner her, and I quickly wrapped her in my coat. The cold bit into me as soon as I had taken it off, but at least I had layers on under it. She needed it more than I did. As I wrapped the coat around her, she sensed that I meant no harm and relaxed. I was still in a hurry to get a fire going as her legs and feet were still exposed. After all this time, I had found... Another living person. I wasn't about to let her die from hypothermia. I started talking rapidly, asking all sorts of questions but receiving no responses from her. I supposed that she was in shock, if not from seeing me, then merely from the cold. I motioned for her to sit on the couch, which she did, curling her bare legs underneath her. Now she began to shiver as the chill began to set in. In the meantime, I worked frantically smashing pieces of old furniture, legs from end tables, kitchen chairs, and, and ripping dry cloth from the upholstery to use as kindling. As soon as I had a sizable pile, I removed my precious lighter from my pocket. No time to return to the other apartment and retrieve my pilot torch, which I always tried to keep lit. She recoiled at the sight of the flame as it sparked from the end of the lighter and caught the kindling. She jumped, and it looked like she was ready to bolt, so I pushed her back to the couch, sat beside her, and held her tightly in my arms. Her breath came quickly, and I could tell that her heart was beating rapidly. She was afraid, but calmed down as soon as the warmth from the fire began to reflect off our skin. I took her hands in mine, and at first she tried to pull back, but stopped resisting when I began to rub them, warming them up and restoring blood flow. I tried communicating again. My name is Azakoff. Who are you? How, how long have you been here? Is there anyone else here with you? I peppered her with questions, eager to learn about my newfound friend. She did not respond. 
not a word, not even a nod or shake of her head. She just looked at me, eyes wide open like a deer in headlights. I admit that the thought crossed my mind right then and there, but I found it too hard to believe. This girl looked to be 16, maybe 18 at the outside. That would mean that she was born after the eruption. She had lived her whole life on this godforsaken planet. Was it possible that she was alone for most of that time? If so, then she may never have learnt even to speak. Yes, I suppose that it was possible, but how had she survived alone for this long? What are you called? Receiving no response, I made a suggestion. Eve, then. Quite unoriginal, but why be fussy? It's not like there are bound to be many others around with that name. I tried again, pointing to myself. Azakov. And then to her. Eve. After a few tries, she picked it up quite well. Truth be told, that's not all she picked up quickly. Within a matter of months, she was carrying on fluent conversation with me, both in Russian and English. I didn't give much thought to the fact, as I did not know much of her past. A year passed, then two, perhaps more. The twilight lifted a little more with each passing month. I doubted that I would ever see true sunlight again, but perhaps Eve would. Perhaps our children... Yes, despite the age difference, after a while the two of us grew closer in an intimate sense. It was only natural, I suppose, new conventions for a new world. As we built our new lives, I lost interest in the borehole. There no longer seemed any point. I took Eve there once and explained what had happened. I even accepted my portion of the blame, but she did not fault me for it. We ran into the occasional creature, but nothing we could not handle together. It seemed as if each one was more intelligent than the last. I wouldn't have been surprised if they were able to converse in our native tongue at some point. With two of us and the bettering conditions, we decided that moving to a lower level of the apartment complex was workable. It made tasks like gathering food and cooking easier, Yes, we were finding food and even hunting occasionally. We did not have to change apartments as often, and Eve, in her fourth month of pregnancy, no longer had to navigate the stairs. I was in the kitchen, filleting a sort of rabbit-looking creature, when I heard Eve speaking outside. At first I assumed that she was talking to me, but... Then I realized that she was using a different language and was carrying only half of the conversation. I rushed to the glassless window and pushed my head out. I could see her with one of those turkey things, only this one was big, more developed. It looked even more humanoid than the ones I had met years ago on the evening that brought Eve and I together. My first instinct was to grab for a weapon, but then I realized that the conversation between Eve and the Thing seemed to be progressing calmly and somewhat constructively. I was about to approach when I suddenly grasped the fact that, to my revulsion, the Thing was not speaking English, 
or Russian or any language a human could possibly vocalize, but that Eve was making the strange noises it took to speak to it. I was in the midst of processing this thought when Eve and the creature lifted their heads and noticed me peering from the window. Still unsure of what to say or do, I just gawped at them, mouth hanging open. Eve waved me over gleefully. Azakov, look who it is. My mother has returned. Family life can seem perfect. You've got a wife and a kid, and you're doing just fine. You're happy. And that imaginary friend your daughter keeps talking to, well, that's just normal, isn't it? Most kids have an imaginary friend when they're young. But in this tale, shared with us by author Alexa Recker, things take a darker turn when daughter Sarah begins to call her imaginary friend her sibling, and then her mum starts to agree. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Sarah Thomas, and Nicole Goodnight. So don't worry too much if your child has an imaginary friend, but maybe you should worry a bit, at least if they start calling him Brother Dearest. The day I met Erin, I knew I had to be with her. She'd been married before and was hesitant to start dating me, but I was patient with her. I knew she was the one. After two years of dating, she agreed to marry me. She wanted this time around to be traditional, so she didn't move in with me until after we had wed. But that didn't bother me. She was finally mine. The day we had our daughter Sarah, was the second best day of my life. I looked down at Erin holding our first child with tears in her eyes, crooning to her softly as she cradled her. My life was complete. I only ever wanted one child, a girl, and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> I have everything I need now. How does it feel to be a mother? Erin looked up at me. Worry flashed across her eyes for a second but I still caught it. She shook her head and a smile appeared on her face. I've always wanted a girl. Five years had passed, and the three of us were doing our typical Saturday morning routine. I was at the kitchenette reading the paper while Aaron was making breakfast. Sarah was at the table playing with her favorite stuffed bear she waited to eat. Tell me, you need to wait your turn. Sarah stared at the empty seat next to her. She had an annoyed expression on her face as she held her bear high above her head. Who's Tommy? What are you talking about, Dad? Breakfast is ready. 
Aaron brought our plates over. She sent four plates down, with the fourth in front of the chair next to Sarah. I glanced up at Aaron quizzically, waiting for an explanation, but received nothing. Aaron then brought over a pan filled with steaming eggs and started to dish it out, including the fourth plate in her serving. Who's the extra plate for? We expecting company? Jim, Tommy needs to eat too. I glanced at Sarah, who started to eat her eggs. Is Tommy your friend? I'd heard of kids having imaginary friends starting around this age, and I figured, why not play along for just a little while? Especially since Aaron was clearly humoring Sarah as well. No, Dad. Tommy is my older brother, remember? He came to live with us yesterday. Oh, right. Your brother. I nodded in agreement. I glanced at Aaron, but she just stared down at her uneaten eggs, eyes wide, mouth tight. I pushed back my chair and stood up. Well, I need to run errands. I'll be back in a few hours. I walked over to Aaron and kissed her on the head, but she was still looking down. Bye, Daddy. <laughs> bye, sweet girl. Dad, aren't you going to say bye back to Tommy? She looked at the chair next to her. I stopped and turned to the empty seat, taking a second, and then waved my hand. Oh, right. Um, bye, Tommy. I then walked out the door. By noon, I was back home, unloading groceries into the fridge. I pulled out a pint of chocolate ice cream from the paper bag and held it up. Sarah, look, I got your favorite flavor for dessert. Sarah looked over at me from the couch where she was watching TV, and an uneasy look passed across her face. It was Tommy's turn to choose the flavor. He doesn't like chocolate. He's going to be upset. Well, Tommy needs to ask me politely next time if he wants a different flavor, but tonight he will enjoy chocolate. I shoved the ice cream in the freezer. I finished putting the groceries away and went upstairs to go find Erin. I found her in our guest bedroom, changing the once yellow sheets to a brand new blue set. Hey, it's Saturday. Why don't the three of us go see a movie tonight? Erin smoothed the comforter with her palm, then looked up at me, her face taut. What about Tommy? What? Just then, Sarah appeared behind me, clapping her hands. Oh, yes, the movies. Tommy would love that. Okay, the four of us will go to the movies. I winked at Aaron. She let out a sigh and smiled at me gratefully. I guessed I could play along with the Tommy game a bit longer. After the movies, we came home and had some ice cream before we retired to bed. I didn't forget to make a bowl for Tommy, and this seemed to please Aaron. I thought it was strange she would go to such lengths to play along with Sarah, with her imaginary friend, but I would do anything to please Aaron. I gestured to the uneaten bowl of ice cream next to Sarah. Tommy isn't even eating. I told you, he doesn't like chocolate and now he's upset. As we finished up our ice cream, we went upstairs to tuck Sarah into bed. I kissed her goodnight on her forehead after pulling the covers up just under her chin. I turned off her bedside lamp and shut her door and retired to bed. 
The next morning, I walked downstairs to start our Sunday routine. Similar to our Saturday routine, Aaron was making breakfast and Sarah was playing while she waited to eat. I grabbed the plates to help set the table. Jim, don't forget Tommy. Aaron continued to stir the eggs. I glanced at the three plates in my hand. Aaron, I'm not going to continue to waste food. I'll act as if Tommy is here, but I won't feed him anymore. Jim, I can't believe you. A look of hurt crossed her face, and she threw the wooden spatula down before storming upstairs. I stared at the back of Aaron in disbelief. Tommy's gonna be upset. He's hungry. Well, that's too bad. I made Sarah's plate and then my own. I decided to give Aaron some time to cool down. I had no idea why she was so upset, but thought some space might do her some good. I decided to go for a quick run around the neighborhood. I returned back home and walked into the living room to stretch. As I strode through the doorway, I noticed the glass on our TV was smashed. Aaron? Sarah? I walked towards the TV to get a closer inspection. What happened to the TV? I started to pick up the bigger pieces of glass when I noticed a framed photo of Aaron and I on our wedding day, also shattered on the floor. Aaron and Sarah hurried into the living room. Who threw this at the TV? I held up the broken framed photo. Aaron had a look of alarm on her face. It was Tommy. <sighs> this is getting out of hand. There is no Tommy. Sarah, did you do this? Stop yelling at Sarah. <laughs> Maybe if you let Tommy eat, he wouldn't have done this. I can't take this Tommy nonsense anymore. We're done with Tommy. Sarah, get the trash can and help your mom clean this up. You're grounded for one week. I started walking out. Where are you going? We need a new TV. I stormed out, slamming the door behind me. I came home an hour later, having slightly calmed down. I decided I would hang the TV later, but first I needed to talk to Aaron about this imaginary friend of Sarah's. It was one thing for Sarah to play, but the extent of which Aaron played along was starting to weird me out. I walked into the house to find Sarah clutching her face and Aaron wiping Sarah's face with a washcloth. I noticed the washcloth had blood on it and rushed over to them. What happened? Tommy, cut me, me with some glass for tattling about the TV. Aaron continued to clean Sarah's cut, shaking her head. He didn't mean to. I stared at the two of them in bewilderment. Aaron, are you serious? How can you still play along? Our daughter is seriously hurt and most likely needs stitches, and you're still talking about Tommy? But Tommy did cut me. <laughs> Sarah pointed next to me and started to cry harder. He was upset. There is no Tommy! Frustration of this situation started to get the best of me. I had to do something to make Sarah believe Tommy wasn't real. See? I pushed, hit, and kicked at the air, 
anything I could do to inflict pain on this invisible friend of Sarah's. Tommy isn't here. There is no Tommy. Stop it, Jim. You're seriously hurting him. Shut up, Aaron. You're not helping. There is no Tommy. I continued to assault the air next to me. I flailed my arms and legs like a madman, my elbows and knees getting sore from hyperextending into nothing. Sweat started to form on my brow, but I wouldn't stop. I resented this game Aaron and Sarah were playing and was taking it out on the air next to me. Only once my limbs were exhausted did I finally stop. Aaron and Sarah were holding each other tightly, staring at me in horror. See, now Tommy's gone. We'll not speak of him again. Now get Sarah's coat. We need to take her to the ER. I'll go get her insurance card. I went upstairs, walked into our bedroom, and opened up our file cabinet that housed our important paperwork. As I searched for Sarah's file, I noticed one that was new. The tab read, Tommy Anderson. I couldn't believe that Aaron went so far as to make a fake file for Tommy. I was about to put it back when curiosity got the best of me. I opened the file and my heart started to pound so hard I could feel it in my ears. There was a birth certificate on the left side of the folder. Michael and Aaron Anderson were listed as the parents. My hands started to shake. Anderson was Aaron's previous married name, and Michael was her ex-husband. On the right side were photos. I picked them up and started to rifle through them. The first photo was of Aaron, holding a baby bundled in a blue blanket, smiling brightly in the photo. The next was a photo of a boy with dark hair, a smattering of freckles, and the same eyes as Aaron, aged about three, holding the hand of a man which I presumed to be Michael. When I saw the final photo, I thought my heart might stop. It was a photo of myself, Aaron, Sarah, and the boy with the eyes that matched Aaron's, standing in front of our house. Managing a funeral parlor can't be an easy job, especially if you live in a small community. The deceased who come through your doors could easily be friends or family. And family's important, especially to this particular funeral director. In this tale, shared with us by author Dan Galvin, we learn about this particular funeral service's family traditions and the somewhat unorthodox methods of business they've thrived on. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy and Andy Cresswell. So join us as we look into the family history of the funeral directors on a small island 
and find out how the last of their line is doing. He goes by the name Oliver. The hum nestles itself in his ribcage, a comfortable vibration finding its well-worn cubbyhole within him. It generates a warmth that keeps him going through the cold evenings. He does not come here during the day. There is work to be done. Even when times are slow, there is always work to be found if one looks hard enough. He cleans his office in the morning after breakfast. A cursory wipe of the surfaces is all that's required. There is little for dust to settle on. If there's too much going on in a room, it unsettles people. His father preferred it to be filled with his assorted curios for that purpose. He's gone now. His objects lie resting in the garage. No need to clean in there. This room contains all it requires. That they agreed on. Only the essentials need to be kept in here. The keys, the gurney, a bucket, and rope. Oliver locked the door behind him. Rarely do nighttime visitors come. But one cannot be too careful. If he is wistful for the company of the living, he need only wander down to the village pub in the evening. He attempts to show his face at least once a week, put on a smile and have a laugh with the newest crop from the island's families, who won't recall the decades of this ritualistic visitation that precedes them. But otherwise, when he is at home and the sign on the door is turned over and the blinds closed, then that is his time and his alone. A magician must never reveal his secrets. The audience must not see behind the curtain. Oliver's crowd witnesses the start of the act. They bring the component to him. The denouement is up to their imaginations, an unspoken agreement that it is best to leave the magic alone, lest reality crash down upon them. And if that agreement is broken, people know better, but it has been, remembers Oliver from his clouded youth then the audience member becomes the participant, the card picker, the rope puller, the assistant in the box. Just one today, old age, natural causes, shorthand for all manner of things, a heart that stops beating, lungs that collapse and blow no more, the whole organ orchestra packing up and calling it a day. He prepared the report that afternoon. Once a tedious affair, Oliver has grown to find the practice meditative in its repetition. His battery-powered record player will spin in the corner, and quiet jazz accompanies his filling out of the reams of legalistic jargon deemed necessary for his profession. A recent addition, but he understands the reasoning. It's much harder for mistakes to be made if there's an audit trial far more difficult to do things incorrectly. But those who go searching for answers, those who aren't content with his judgment, of which there have been few, will only look at those documents, for that is what they're interested in. 
The form that relates to the documents remains Oliver's once his services are called upon. Ink and information are far more palpable to most than blood and bones. It is an affectation of humanity that he is thankful for. Squeamishness keeps away interferers. No peeking behind the curtain. He pushes off the planks of wood that form the well's lid, round and as wide as an old-fashioned wagon wheel, nailed together with iron stakes and bound by thick copper wiring. The crumbling brick and stone centerpiece is smooth where he rests his hands. It is around it that his business, his home, his whole existence revolves. The hum grows louder. It is as much his essence as the blood pumping through him. With the lid lifted, Oliver is buffeted, encased by the din rising from the ancient hole. His aches fade, and pains disappear as the vibrato courses through him. Rejuvenation in oral form, a tincture not requiring bottling to strengthen his flimsy bones. Joy of joys kept for him and no one else. Who else can be trusted to keep such beauty unspoilt? To lap up the sweetness of secrecy as he and his family have in exchange for their service. If illness had not taken his son, then he would be standing beside Oliver, learning the art, sharing the bond between them. He recalls the boy in his waistcoat and shorts, running around outside the office window, oblivious to that awaiting him. Grief used to tear at him when he recalled those memories. Now, it does not rouse itself, for time has sapped its strength. Oliver is the sole survivor, to his knowledge. The woman who birthed that son is a wisp, a half-formed shadow lurking in his muddled memories. Blue eyes and foreign. From across the sea, Perhaps. Maybe she was local. No, he'd remember that. Daughters, too. They left their birthlands to travel to their mothers, he seems to recall. Or believe. He's unsure as to which one, though it is irrelevant. They'll be long gone, too. Now his lineage's hope rests uneasily upon his shoulders, as it has done since his father left him. He gave up on calendars. The mirrors do not help. Father left them, after his family, his wife. Did they marry? We consummated something. A thought of flesh and fluid flitting to the forefront before disappearing, which led to something, and that something is nothing now. And here he is, now. It'll be left to his discretion. Let the place rot. Let the show close its run, or find an apprentice to teach. When his time comes, he wants someone to be there to lower him down. To spend my life taking and not to give back something unacceptable. He provides, but he must give back what he took. Father did. The world was changing, and he could not. He knew when to pass on the mantle. 
Oliver lowered him down in that bucket in the corner, wrought from trees felled in a time lost to recollection, and watched as they fed. They writhed blindly in their conjoined mass, rings of hairless, pulsating flesh dragging themselves across limp, pallid skin, stripping down his father to the bone, their teeth raking and their insides gurgling. As they feasted, the hum grew and drifted upwards to Oliver, their forces of renewal leaving the heap of decay that they sorted out so quickly. Never had he seen such beauty in the world until that day. Never had he felt such power course through him, restoration and repair running through each part of his form. He wept that evening. It was the only way he knew at that moment how to express his gratitude. Soon enough, he understood the appropriate way. Tears of joy could come after the feeding. Sometimes, even now, he cannot control himself, and droplets will slide down the well's wall to them. They do not notice. An apprentice must be found. They must continue to be sated. They deserve such offerings, for the offerings they give back are more than one could conjure from tiny minds born of such small spans upon the ground they're birthed. His end is to be witnessed, but that will be by someone who is worthy. His business is a constant that shall remain so, for there is a need for death to be dealt with. The island would find someone to take his place. The supermarkets came for the grocers, internet for the letter, and the future will come for him. The essential role won't go unheeded, but they will not have them unless he finds the person himself before the wrong one fills his shoes. A new lineage for a new age. He's got this far without too many questions. Uncanny resemblance. Strong genes. The excuses change, for the man cannot. That will be explained to his protege, he thinks. My boons and burdens shall be theirs. He lowers down today's offering. Few and far between now. Fewer residents and better medicine. Longevity is a double-edged sword for all. Not that he wishes for pestilence and famine. Frail bones and shriveled organs fit comfortably in the bucket. It'll come back empty, and he'll peer over the side to take in the sight and wait for his end of the deal. In the morning, he'll fill the casket with sand and gravel and nail it shut. He'll escort it to the graveyard, where it will be laid to rest alongside its stone and sand brethren. The family will mourn, and he will offer his genuine condolences. Falsity is foolishness in his trade, and trade is what he needs if he is to carry on receiving. He chuckles. It's not as if there is currently a smorgasbord of funerary specialists on the island. A well-established, respected family is how he'd once have heard his lot referred to as. When they're the only ones on the cold and windy rock you call home willing to sort out the deeds too sorrowful, 
the acts of necessary desecration to put the still presence minds at ease, then expressions of praise are bountiful. Praise pales to the well's waters. If only they knew. Some may have twigged, but who are they to pry on what the professionals do behind closed doors? Give them what they want, and they're content. They've paid for their ticket to the show and no more. And those who do search, they know the risks. The balance is best kept as it is, and everyone knows it. Let me work and let them mourn. Death staves off death for all of us. Taking in that last deep note of ecstasy reverberating from the satiated, Oliver grabs the well's edge and peers down at the bile-yellow sacks in their glorious fetidity. They cannot look back at him, for if they have eyes, they are not visible, but they know he is gazing upon them. They emit a screech, a contract signed once more, and return to their writhing in the squelching pit of crimson and gray, their overlapping existence wedged amongst each other waiting for their next feed. He exhales as the room returns to its regular, gentle hum, and the stained bucket is pulled up, lighter than before. It's returned to its rightful corner, awaiting its next load. Oliver must do the same for his next sup from the well. Seeking out offerings directly is something he can never do. It has never crossed his mind. Unprofessional to begin with, not the acts of a good man. He accepted long ago that he must wait. It makes the gift feel far more special. Heaving the lid back over the well, he sighs and stretches his arms. The cracking, the creaking, and the grinding have been cast aside, biding their time to return. He watches the muscles of his forearm flex under smooth, unblemished skin. The well's waters have quenched his thirst. He unlocks the door and leaves the sanctum. Before he retires for the night, he enters his office. The record player is spinning, the track long since finished. A wry smile, evidence for his next action. If he does not do it now, he will surely forget in the morning. He takes out his fountain pen from the oak desk drawer and a sheet of blanched white paper. He will walk down to the village tomorrow and place it upon the notice board. We've come full circle. He carefully chooses his words. Brevity. Don't give the act away before the start of the performance, Oliver. Funeral director requires assistant. Inquire with Mr. Kent. And they will not believe what they have been lacking in their lives. They will learn. The well awaits them. It awaits them all.
Family is important, and not just those related to you by blood. When you grow up closely entwined with a best friend, their family can become your family too. You care about them as much as your own. That's the case in this tale, shared with us by author Scott Savino. When Andy's Aunt Darlene goes missing, it affects Scott just as hard. So naturally, both men want to find her. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Dan Zapula, and Aaron Lillis. So when a loved one goes missing, don't hesitate to go looking for them, but pay attention to the message they leave behind, especially if they're warning you about peepers. I'm suspended in the void, floating. Senses fail here, except hearing, which is fine because this is the nothingness, nothing to feel or see. It's a quiet place, peaceful, like finding yourself adrift in space. Then a familiar voice reminds me to be afraid. I can't see but he speaks to me in harsh whispers near my ear. Whatever you do, don't open your eyes. Don't even peek. The peepers say they're coming for you next. You're not supposed to see. I awake in bed. My sheets are in a tangled knot, ripped free from the corners and damp with sweat. Andy and I have been best friends for over 20 years, since kindergarten. I have been having these dreams about him every night for the last three weeks. Every night since the day he disappeared. I think I know what to do now. It doesn't have to happen the same way. Andy and Aunt Darlene were wrong. Aunt Darlene wasn't really my aunt. She was Andy's. We were so close growing up, and in a way, I thought of her as my family, too. It was a shock to both of us two months ago when we learned she had gone missing. Aunt Darlene was a lively woman, energetic and quick with a laugh. When she laughed, it showed through her entire body. Her short legs shook, her dark hair swayed, and the gleam in her bright green eyes grew. She worked out of her home. Learn Your Future glowed brightly from her front window in neon lights, outlined by a giant flashing palm. Through Aunt Darlene, you'd learn your future, told by tea leaves or tarot cards. She could see your triumphs, but she could also see the things that haunted you. She taught Andy and me about our third eyes, auras, and energies. After seeing what I've seen... I believe she knew about a great deal more than what she'd shared with us when we were young. But in the end, she didn't know enough. Andy stopped by because she hadn't answered his repeated calls. She was getting on in years, and every unanswered call led to the worry of unanswered questions. Did she fall and break her hip? Did she nod off after diving into a bottle of gin with a lit cigarette in hand? He made it a point to check in with her frequently. When he arrived, the house was bright and looked occupied. Nothing was out of place aside from the front door, which stood ominously ajar. 
He told me about it over the phone. It's the strangest thing. It's like she just stepped out to get her mail or something. Like she'd planned to be right back but decided otherwise and left. Nothing's broken or toppled, no signs of struggle. Her last meal is here on the table. That's really weird. There's only two bites missing. I'm coming over. When I arrived, a policeman who yawned into his fist was glancing half-heartedly around. Andy spoke to him in an increasingly agitated voice. The officer scribbled a few lines, closing the notebook before Andy even had finished his statement. As the officer left, he told us flatly that people decided to up and leave around here all the time, that he'd file it, but she would probably be back. After he'd gone, Andy quietly swore for an hour, storming around as we searched the house for clues. On her office desk, bound in cherry red, the current year embossed in gold filigree across the center, was a ledger. In place of a bookmark, a pen stuck out between the pages. I glanced it over. The front held accounting, yet the pen lay towards the back in the pages of notes. I called Andy into the room after I'd read. This was probably the last thing she'd written. Delusional ramblings. I worried how Andy'd react to it. What do you make of this? I handed it to him despite the stone of dread I felt fall inside my stomach. The hurried handwriting was difficult to read. If you're reading this, I'm gone. I'm sorry. They start as shadows. I saw them from the window. Maybe you'll be walking down the sidewalk after dark and stop to stare at a spot where you thought you saw movement. Is this the nighttime playing tricks? You were sure something was there, so you stare right at that spot. Don't do that. Whatever you do, you must pretend not to see. Close your eyes because it mustn't see you. I see them, so now they see me. Andy looked up at me, his face lost. What the fuck is this? I don't know, it's weird. You'll think it's just the shifty dark toying with your eyes, but that's folly. Something jagged does stalk you in the soft edges of night. You'll see it bouncing in and out of sight, and even with the sense of dread alerting fight or flight, you will ignore your instinct to run. Why? Don't ignore it. Run. Hide. But don't hide where they hide. Hide someplace bright. If you are reading this and have begun to see them too, don't write it off. Everything's fine is a pleasant thought, but it's wrong. If you feel the fear that something lurks behind or in front or off to the side in the corner of your eye, don't let them realize you saw. It isn't nothing, and no matter how many locks you have, hiding behind a door won't keep you safe. Locks are not going to keep them at bay. They're shadows, and shadows find a way. I've seen them here, in my place. I've burned sage. I have so many charms and am trying so many things to keep them away. But their numbers are increasing, and my options are dwindling each day. Andy's brow furrowed as he read further down. When you see them, when you stare, they mark you. It's just one at first. As soon as you see it, it sees you too. It knows. 
You become a shining beacon and the number grows. Others come, one by one, shadows that are not supposed to move as they do, vying for spaces out of the light and crowding just on the edge of your sight and filling your periphery like a vignette of night. All the time they grow closer. They'll follow you for a while, waiting for their moment. It may be days or weeks. I've seen them now, for fourteen or fifteen nights. I haven't figured out what to do. I know they came because I saw them outside. I saw them crowding a man who was walking calmly by. His slow and steady steps were incongruent with the fear hiding behind his eyes. He could see them, too. That man knew they were there, everywhere. I didn't know what to do, so all I did was stare. Only one took him. It climbed inside. The man disappeared before my eyes, and as he did, they seemed to express a collective shudder of delight before disappearing once again into the night. One remained. I could feel it staring back my way, though it was staring with an eyeless face. They're patient, so they wait until the moment is right. Then one night, they'll work as a team so one of them can strike, and I will be gone. I haven't said anything, because they'll call me insane. To my family, if I'm gone, I'm sorry. I should have told you something was wrong. But I didn't want you to see. Darlene. Nandy's eyes were filled with tears. Did she go nuts? What is this? What do we do? I don't know. It was all I could manage to say. Weeks later, Andy disappeared. That night began with a phone call. He hadn't been returning my calls or texts since that day at Darlene's. I could feel a churn of emotions as his name flashed across the screen. In the end, anger won. I picked up the call. Where the fuck have you been? I've been talking to Darlene. My heart leapt. I'd found her. Thank God. She's been coming in my dreams, Scott. <laughs> I don't think she's dead. I think it's worse. What? Can you meet me? He showed up half an hour after he said he would, sliding into the stool next to me so soundlessly I didn't even notice his arrival. When I turned, I jumped at the sudden appearance. My longtime friend had become a gaunt-faced, haunted caricature of himself. He nervously scratched at the unkempt beard on his cheeks and neck, his eyes flitting across every dark corner of the bar. Are you okay, Andy? No. No, Scott, I'm not. He did not make eye contact. The thing in her book, the, 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 the diary, it's, it's real. She told me. No, it isn't. It didn't make any sense. I read it too. Andy glared at me. Yes, she's been meeting me in my dreams. She calls them peepers because they go for your eyes. Scott, I saw it. Them. I see them. Everywhere. What drugs are you on? He changed the subject, shaking his head. 
Carol's gone. She took the baby. She wants a divorce. Seriously, what's wrong with you? Andy sighed heavily, but his nervous glances didn't slow. He looked around the bar like a cornered animal searching for escape. He reached his hands across his face. Just coffee. Lots of it so I don't sleep. Lost my job a week or two ago. Mostly she was mad about the lights. The lights? Been keeping them all on. Haven't turned them off. She'd turn them off, I'd turn them back on. The place was nearly empty, but Andy's twitching drew stares from the handful of patrons. Maybe I should walk you home. We can talk more there. Yes, in the lights. I don't know what I was thinking about coming here. It's too dark. That's right, man. We'll talk in the lights. I put $10 on the bar in front of me and we left. We were outside and on the sidewalk. Andy began walking very briskly, then jogged. Hey, slow down! He didn't, so I matched his pace to keep up. <laughs> They're everywhere, don't you see them? Andy, what the fuck are you talking? Then I did. I saw them. A jagged shadow poked its head out from the inside of a garbage bin right in front of us. It flitted in and out of vision, like it broadcasted itself on the wrong frequency and then ducked back down. Andy turned left, attempting to run across the street. From the boughs of an overhanging tree, a second strange shadow folded itself down, its legs clinging to a branch. Its face blocked the way. We turned back the way we'd come, and on the wall, creeping downward to the ground, a third crawled from the darkness that loomed beneath a storefront awning. Andy faced the only direction that remained, down an alley. He took off in a sprint. That was a mistake. They were hurting him. I realized this too late. He stopped halfway down the alley with his hands covering his face. The things, the, the peepers crawled out from every dark corner on all fours. They slung toward where he stood, their movement and size like stalking cats. They had no feet. Each of their four limbs ended in another hand. They were fully formed, not shadows anymore, and flickering in and out of sight as they surrounded him. Scott, don't look, don't look! Aunt Darlene says don't let them see that you can see! How could one look away from a nightmare so mesmerizingly strange? How does one turn away from the wreck when passing? Away from a friend before he vanishes. One of them snagged his ankles from behind. It climbed up Andy's back, digging deep divots into his flesh with all of its serrated fingers, slashing through his clothes and skin, tracing lines of blood like finger paints through his gray shirt. Andy howled and shuddered bodily, but still made no attempt to move. In the darkest part of the alley, the echoing patter of hands as feet slapping pavement swelled. It sounded wrong like a warped vinyl recording played back. It hissed and popped and scratched and increased in pace. The thing that clung to Andy's shoulders pried his hands away from his face, pulling them around behind his back and held them there with one of its extra hands. Another peeper ran into view as the one on his shoulders reached around, digging two of its fingers into Andy's eyelids, forcing them open. 
No, God. Andy, shut your fucking eyes! It was all true. I watched it enter him. The surrounding crowd parted as the peeper running upright closed in, leaping into the air towards his face and funneling into his eyes like liquid spinning down two adjacent drains. Andy changed frequencies then to match theirs. He became a dark silhouette with angular sharp edges. I watched him disappear, closing into himself like an aperture. The jagged static collapsed in on his stomach until he was gone. The peepers watched too, and began to flicker out of sight until only one remained. As I stared at it, it stared back. I closed my eyes and whipped around, feeling the emptiness before me, escaping blindly. When I opened my eyes again, I stood on an empty sidewalk in the sweet after midnight air, bathed in the lonesome glow of a single streetlight. Aunt Darlene's advice didn't work for Andy, so it stands to reason that it also won't work for me. It took several sleepless nights sitting under the lights to figure out where Andy and Darlene went wrong. But after my latest dream, I know what to do. I have to be strong. Even under the light of every lamp you own, you're creating places, obscure dark spaces where the peepers can hide. Light is not the solution. More light means more shadows. I think they only hurt you because they've been seen. You're not supposed to hide in the bright. You're supposed to hide in the nothing. That's the only place that seems safe. That place in my dreams. I'm staring down into the kitchen sink, looking at the spoon, trying to decide. Then I do decide. This way, they'll have no place to hide. When one is done, it stares up at me from the kitchen sink, expressionless and bloody, and yet seeming somehow to gaze at me alert and wide with shock. There's just one left. I take a shaky breath. The spoon feels cold against my eyelid, against my skin. I push it in. In our final tale, we join Anne, a young woman who finds herself stranded during a road trip. Thankfully, there's a very kind coffee shop owner on hand to offer Anne lodgings, somewhere to stay. Well, that's time to kick back and explore the location then. But in this tale, shared with us by author Alex Gaskin, we discover that it's not safe to go out at night. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Mary Murphy, Mike Delgadio, Jessica McAvoy, and Dan Zapula. So hunker down overnight, don't go looking for trouble, and whatever you do, 
don't trust whatever is on the other side of the door. Ben, are you supposed to be wearing your uniform when you're out on a date? Hey now, I'll have you know I'm here on official police business. It's true. Ben found me stranded by the side of the road and whisked me away with promises of fresh coffee and a break from the cold. I'm Anne, by the way. Lovely to meet you, Anne. I'm Judy. You know... Ben doesn't usually bring stranded motorists in for a drink. I'm just trying to be hospitable while things are slow. Look, if I thought the station needed me, I... Donahue, we need your assistance. Got a 1091D at the Rasmussen Farm, and they're giving me an earful about it. Need someone there ASAP. Yeah, I'm on my way. Should be there in 10. Judy, can I owe you for whatever Ann gets? She's drinking on the house today. Thanks. And Judy is good company. But anything negative she says about me is a total fabrication. Judy, I have a car I can't drive, a road trip that's been delayed for who knows how long, and my not-a-date just ditched me. What do you have to make all those problems go away? I have coffee. One coffee, then. I think I'll join you if you don't mind. Sure. So, how long have you had this place? I've been here about 15 years now. I guess I'll keep at it until Starbucks finds our little town and pushes me out. (laughs) I'm surprised this area isn't better known. It seems lovely here. Honestly, I thought it would be all fields and farmlands until the next highway. We aren't on many people's radars. Hell, you've probably already noticed the cell service is basically non-existent. Hard to get more out of touch than that. Well, I'm sure I'll have a great time exploring tonight and tomorrow while I wait for... Oh, God, I just realized. Is there a motel nearby? Ben said I shouldn't expect repairs until at least tomorrow, and I completely forgot to ask him about it. The closest motel's about 50 miles from here. There was a woman who lived by me, Margaret, who would keep her spare room nice to rent to people when they came through. But she passed away a few weeks ago. Oh, God. I'm sorry about your neighbor. That's sweet of you to say, but we... Well, we weren't close. And at her age, it wasn't a surprise to anyone. Oh, God. I guess I could reach out to Ben, see if the station can do anything. But if not, I hate to ask, but could you possibly give me a ride to the nearest motel after you close? I can pay for the cost of your gas. Oh, gosh. Driving at night, it's... Risky. The roads outside town are in bad shape and they aren't lit. You know, I still have the bed in my daughter's old room. 
You could stay with me if you like. Oh, no, I don't want to impose. Are you sure? It's available free of charge, and I can even throw in a hot meal. I don't get to cook for anyone that often. It's been so long since I got my daughter to bring her kids over for a nice family dinner. Are you using parent guilt on me? You caught me. <sighs> really, you're sweet to offer your place, but are the roads at night really that bad? I just. You don't go out after dark! You don't! Bethany, it's all right. I. Not at night! Not at night! <laughs> Is she... is she all right? Her son's gone missing. He was supposed to spend the weekend in Lincoln with friends, but he tried to drive home Friday night. They found his car abandoned at the edge of town, but they didn't find his body. Oh, that's awful. He just disappeared? She must be going through hell. I guess I'm just being naive, but it's strange to think of something like that happening in a little town like this. It just seems so peaceful here. Yes, it really does. Okay, I admit I had my reservations, but zucchini noodles were actually really good. I told you, people only stick with carbs out of tradition or laziness. So, how long's it been since you visited your sister? A couple of years since I went out to see her, but she spent a few days with us when our dad passed. And we always talk on the phone. We were both hoping Mom would join me on the drive, but these last few months have been hard. I know she just needs time, but... It's... it's tough to see her struggle. It's not easy. I think it was about a year before I really got through it all. Never fully goes away. God, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to dredge those feelings up. No, no. It's been years. I'm not afraid to talk about it. And I can tell you, after losing Albert, having our daughter around... Trust me, it helps. Does your daughter still live in town? <laughs> she does. She's a teacher at the school. One of the lucky ones her age who could actually find a job here. She was determined, though. She kept telling me she couldn't imagine raising kids anywhere else. Two daughters later, and she's still committed to sticking around even as the class sizes keep dropping. I guess you guys must really love this place. Honestly, I'm only here because she's still here. Really? With the shop and how long you've been here, you'd want to leave? Things are different here now from how it was when I was young. It's hard to look at what it's becoming sometimes. I can make coffee... Would you like some? It's decaf. That sounds great. I'll be right back. While I'm doing that, why don't you look out the window? 
There's something you should see. Um, sure. What am I looking for, exactly? Nothing specific. I just want you to have a look around. It's so dark out. I can't really make anything out. Well, that's actually what I wanted you to see. I told you the roads outside town aren't lit. But it's not just them. There are no lights on in the town. And I don't mean just street lamps, either. No stores, no bars, no stoplights. Even homes keep their blinds closed. No one goes out at night here. Not ever. Bethany's son, he knew better than to try. He must have been too drunk to think it through. It must make for some good stargazing. No light pollution? I bet you could- Anne, no one goes out at night here. And I need you to promise me you won't try to go out either. For any reason. Are you seriously telling me I'm not allowed to leave? I am. Look, I can explain what's happening. It might be hard to believe, but I think you deserve to know. I don't like this, Judy. You telling me I can't leave, it's a little upsetting. I'm sorry. I didn't want to scare you, but I need you to take this seriously. We should get away from the window. I thought about not telling you, just hoping for the best, or... I don't know. It's not easy to talk about. I tried to tell you that our town's been having problems. We're losing jobs, being forgotten, and losing people. But it isn't what you think. We're not just dying out. We're being hunted. What? I don't understand. I'm not sure when it started. But I became aware of it around 20 years ago. They're patient, but they're relentless. Sometimes it's weeks or even months before another person is lost. They're out there every night. And I don't think they'll go away until this town is completely empty. Judy, you're not making sense. You're being hunted? Who would even do that? It's vampires, Anne. What? Anne, I know how it sounds. What? I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. It's... Nope. Nuh-uh. I don't know if this is some weird town ritual to freak out travelers, or if you just thought it would be funny, but I've had a really long day, and I don't need you playing games like this. I know how it sounds, Anne. There are people who live here who don't believe it. My own daughter won't believe, even though they've taken some of her classmates and other people she knew. Uh, for some, the thought is just more than they can process. But I've seen some of the bodies. I've been in search parties and come across them in the woods. Okay, I'll play along. How is this not a news story? 
You say you've found bodies, so there's evidence. There's no way this stays quiet. They don't just attack physically. Their presence here affects the residents. They cloud people's minds. They can make you see things and hear things. They can look and sound just like us. That's how they catch people at night. Even people who should know better. Oh, that's convenient. A monster that can look and sound like people and can magically make the rest of the world not believe in them. <sighs> I think you should take me to a motel. I know it's dark and the roads are supposed to be scary. I just... I think it would be best. Anne, think about what you just saw. Why is everything so quiet and so dark? It's that way for a reason. We don't want people to leave their homes at night. Our homes are the only safety we have. Why do you think Bethany was so upset? Judy, just stop. Don't use that woman's grief to say these awful things. Fine, I'll leave her out. Do you want to know what Ben was called away for? I... Sure, fine. Tell me. When a call came in asking Ben to check out a 1091-D, he was being asked to investigate the death of someone's animal. And there's only a need to report a death when it's not from natural causes. And I'm sure that happens all the time. A fox or a coyote or whatever gets after a pet or some chickens. I'm not falling for this. The Rasmussens only have one animal. A big and remarkably foul-tempered bull. Ben can take a report, but he wouldn't even try to track down something that was able to kill that bull. Not when it was so close to sundown. There are no lights anywhere in town. You saw that yourself. If we leave and we get stranded, we're out there alone with whatever it is that did that. You don't have to believe in vampires to believe it's a very bad idea to be stranded outside in the dark with something that can kill a bull. Right? That... No. How do I know you aren't making this up? Albert volunteered at the station for years, and I still have his old book with the police codes. I can get it for you if you need proof. Okay, fine. Something might be out there. But vampires? That doesn't even fit what happened. If they made the report this afternoon, their bull must have been killed during the day. The Rasmussens have been out of town visiting their son in the hospital. It could have happened days ago, and they would have only just found out. Well, you're thorough, I'll give you that. You can keep adding these details to your story, but you're not going to convince me that there are vampires. That's just not happening. I understand. And God, I wish I could join you in that disbelief. But this town is being preyed on. Even the people who make the most noise about not believing avoid going out after the sun sets. Judy, please let this go. It sounds ridiculous. I get it. But can you at least trust me that you're better off here than trying to find your way around in the dark? In a community where no one is going to answer their door or check on a scream or ever know you're out there? 
Can you at least believe me that I'm telling you to stay inside for your own safety? I... Yeah, fine. Sure. That's good enough for me. The door to Tina's room locks from the inside, and the window is sealed shut. I didn't want to take any chances. You know, you actually kind of look like her. Yeah? You'll have to look at the photos of her that are on her old dresser. <sighs> she loves this town, and nothing's going to take her away from it. And nothing's going to take her away from me. I'm still here to make sure of that. And I'll stay until I'm sure my granddaughters will be safe, too. So, I guess as long as the door's shut, we're supposed to be safe? Isn't that the role that vampires have to be invited in? If I promise to leave the door alone, can we please drop it? Yes, but it's a little more difficult than it sounds. They can enter physically, but they can still get into your head. Confuse you. Trick you into letting them in. Even while you're asleep, they can invade your thoughts. I can't help but notice you haven't tried to drink your coffee yet. Yeah, sorry. Been a little preoccupied. Wait. Before you take a sip, I should tell you something. I added something to your drink. I put it in mine, too. It's a local remedy to help you sleep. Jesus! It helps you sleep without dreams. It's to keep you safe. I keep it around because I need it sometimes. It's... Are you out of your fucking mind? I'm getting out of here. If I was trying to trick you, why would I tell you? Don't know, don't fucking care. Anne. Anne. Look at me, Anne. See? This is your cup. I'm drinking from it. See? Ah. I put it in both cups, because I intended for us both to have it. Like I said, I use it too. I should have told you up front, and I'm sorry I didn't. But I just want us to be safe. You don't have to take anything, but I'm telling you, having them in your mind is bad. But having them in your dreams is so much worse. Judy, this isn't... Please, I just... <sighs> I'm going to bed. It won't take long for me to fall asleep now. You won't bother me if you stay awake. You might even be better off staying awake. But no matter what, that front door stays closed. Please. The bedroom you're in will lock from the inside. You don't even have to see me in the morning. Just leave me a note of some kind and let me know you left safely. Jesus. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs>
time is it? One thirty. Oh God, I can't breathe in here. Open the door, Anne. It's Judy. You're not safe with her. I'm... what? I'm so sorry. I didn't know anything until tonight. But as soon as I found out, I came here. You're not safe with Judy. What did she do? It's bad, Anne. It's really bad. And I need you to let me in so I can deal with her before she tries to hurt you. Deal with... Are you here to arrest her? Are you alone? I can't see anything through the peephole. It's so dark. God, I can't believe I trusted her. Look, I'm going to keep you safe, and I'm going to make sure Judy doesn't hurt you or anyone else. I... Okay, I'm... Anne, get away from that door right now. Judy? It's Ben. He's here to, um... He wanted to check on us. That isn't Ben. What you're hearing is just what it thinks you need to hear in order to open the door. Don't do it. Judy, that story of yours, I just can't believe- I warned you they go out at night. And I warned you they would try to trick you into opening the door. What are the odds Ben just happens to show up with some urgent story in the middle of the night, asking to be let in? What are the odds? What the hell do odds have to do with any of this? And of course it's me. Who the hell else would it be? You're a vampire. You're doing what they do, trying to mess with our minds to get inside. A vampire? Oh, God damn it. Are you really? And open the door now. If you let me in, I can tell you what's really going on. But you need to move quickly because you're not safe in there with Judy. It's just in your head, Anne. When you break the hold, it will retreat and we'll be safe. Oh, you want to know what's really going on, Anne? Okay. Some people, like Judy, actually believe our town is being preyed on by vampires. And they'll sometimes go out of their way to scare travelers with their stories. It was the seed of an idea spread like three decades ago by a traveling minister named Gary Orson. He was one of those traveling types who wanted to cash in on the satanic panic of the day. Only he claimed his devil worshippers took their inspiration from vampires, not witches. I'm sure people tried to ignore him at first, but he made some slick speeches, offered up a few creatively interpreted Bible references, and even tried to start leading his followers on daylight raids after a couple of kids went missing. People who are hurting can put their faith in whatever gives them relief. The cops back then had to scare Orson into leaving because he quickly became a public menace. Most people don't even remember him. 
but his story stuck with his followers. And over time, it mutated into nonsense about actual vampires. Now, we even have to leave all of our lights off at night just to humor these cranks who still believe. Just ignore it, Anne. It's just telling a story, one that it hopes will get it inside. You don't have to listen to anything it says. Just go back to bed and... How are you awake right now, Judy? You said the stuff you tried to give me would... I was only giving you a small amount. I'm used to taking a larger dose, so it had less of an effect on me. It was enough for me to fall asleep, but not enough to keep me asleep. When I heard noises in the hallway... Judy, I'm going to let Ben finish talking. Anne. I'm going to let Ben finish talking, Judy. You can stand there or you can go back to bed. Ben? I think at this point, all of the vampire talk from some of the old folks drives kids away as much as the lack of jobs. Everything that's happened to this town has happened to countless other places, especially these last few years. Friends and neighbors get sick and die, and so they blame vampires. You know what they should be afraid of? Old age and opioids, just like every other dying town. Addiction and depression and loneliness break people all the time. I can't blame them for wanting it to be something else's fault, but you know how crazy this sounds. Anne, get away from the door and stop letting this thing get into your head, please. Hey, Judy, maybe instead of pretending I'm not real, you should ask me why I showed up tonight. Because I learned some pretty wild stuff about you earlier. What was it? That isn't Ben. Stop acknowledging it and walk away. You're going to get away from that door even if I have to drag you. If you take another step, I'm opening this door right now. And I'm letting him finish. Ben, what did you learn? Judy had a neighbor, Margaret, who passed away just a few weeks ago. Most people didn't think anything of it. She was old, she was a heavy drinker, people who knew her knew it would happen sooner or later. But what I couldn't figure out was why Judy was the one to find her. I mean, they lived next to each other, sure, but they weren't friendly. Anne, it's all made up. Nothing it says has any bearing on reality. You aren't fooling me anymore, Judy. I couldn't stop thinking something was amiss, so I had a toxicology report done on Margaret's body. It was waiting for me on my desk when I got to the station this evening. Turns out, she's been poisoned with antifreeze. It's actually pretty easy to mask in food or in beverages like tea or coffee. It's just a trick. It's trying to turn what's in your head against you. I... I can't... I don't... And no, you'll be dead the moment you open that door. As much as we have a lot of people with health problems, it seems like people in Judy's orbit get sick or worse pretty often. Sometimes a person she butts heads with winds up in the hospital. Sometimes a disobedient grandchild is bedridden with stomach problems. Hey, Judy, hasn't it been a while since Tina brought her kids over for one of your big family meals you love to host? Don't you dare say her name. And all that got me thinking. Didn't Albert die off awfully suddenly? Sure, he'd been sick, but he was getting better. And then, bleh, drops dead. So, I made some requests. 
I'm gonna dig up his body, Judy. I'm gonna run some tests on it and see if we can't find out what really happened. Shut up. Just shut up. Anne, none of this is real. Everything it's telling you, it's just a trick. This isn't Ben. Anne, look, I know how it sounds. I'm still having a hard time believing Judy is capable of murder. But isn't it a lot harder to believe that vampires exist? Look, you've got two choices here, and one of them is literally impossible. I... How did you know I was staying with Judy? What? You said you came here for me, but how did you know I was staying here? I, I know Judy's one of those who won't leave the house at night. I just assumed she would have offered you her spare room. If I'd suspected anything this afternoon... But you did suspect something. That's why you tested Margaret's body. If Ben Donahue, the real Ben, thought you were in trouble, he would have made absolutely sure you were safe. That's the kind of person he is. This thing doesn't understand men like that. It has no concept of decency. I'm sorry. I messed up. I was flustered and I had to go and... Damn it! This is what she does, Anne. She's the one who plays tricks. She's the one who you need to be afraid of. It's just... I don't know. Anne, just please don't let her fool you. Let me in so I can protect you. Think about your safety. Think about your family. Imagine how much pain it'll cause your mother losing her daughter just after losing her father. I... I didn't tell Ben about my father. I told Judy during dinner, but Ben doesn't know anything about it. No, you, you did tell me. It was on the ride to the coffee shop. How else would I know? I didn't say anything about my father to Ben. I remember because I actually felt guilty about it. I, I felt like I was trying to keep it hidden because we were having a nice time and I just wanted to put it out of my mind for a while. Anne, you've had a long day. You've been through a lot. You're just misremembering. You did tell me about your father. I'm sorry to bring it up like this, but I need you to- Stop it! Just leave! I'm not letting you in! Anne! God damn it, Anne! You need to open that door right now! You're in danger! Just walk away from the door, Anne. Once you walk away, it will give up. Anne! You have to let me in, Anne! Right now! Open the goddamn door! It's gonna hurt you! She's gonna kill you! Open it now! You added it? I did. I put in just enough to help you sleep for the rest of the night. No dreams. I, uh, that thing out there. I know. It's a lot to take in. I, I don't understand how it's possible. I'm not even religious. I don't have room for this. We were lucky. 
They don't always make obvious mistakes like that. But, but what do we do? If these things are out there, they have to be in other places. How do you deal with it? One of the advantages of being in a small town like this is that there wasn't much of a nightlife to give up. The lights being out have helped, at least for the peace of mind to not look out a window and see one in the shadows. Even the skeptics mostly take the right precautions. But can we do something about them? I don't know, in the movies you're supposed to find their coffins during the day. I don't think they come from coffins. A few of us have gone out and checked the cemetery, but there's never been any signs of a disturbance. They seem to hunt alone, but I believe they nest together when the sun is out. There's a cave just beyond town, out to the northeast. The ground around it, well, it's all dead. Cracked dirt and withered tree trunks. I've been there in the daylight. You could feel the change in the wind when you get close. It's sours. The air hurts your lungs. I believe it's where they go during the day. You went out there? Why? After Albert died, I was the only one to look after Tina and her girls, who were still so little. This was after Tina's husband. I'll put it this way. Albert passed from natural causes. My son-in-law didn't. Tina's convinced her husband abandoned them. And I think that idea is less painful than believing he could have been killed by those... things. But I had to make sure I could protect them. So I tried to study them. Asked around to other people in town. Did as much research as I could. Though most of it was worthless. I found the cave by looking at aerial photos of the land around our town. That one spot was so empty of life, it just felt like the right place. You wanted to confront them? I thought I might be able to, but it's hard to tell how deep that cave is, and the protection from the sun might make them able to defend themselves. An attack was too risky, but I couldn't let them hurt Tina. Or my granddaughters. I couldn't. What did you do? I made a couple leaps of faith. If they can reach into our minds, I thought maybe there was a way to talk back. And if they nest together, there might be a leader that coordinates their behavior. So I tried to reach the leader, and I offered it a deal. Something to convince them to spare my family. A deal? What was the deal? That I bring them offerings. Whenever I can. Offer? Oh, no. Oh, Judy, no, I... I'm sorry, Anne. I hoped I wouldn't have to. But after one came to the door, they'll know I have someone here. I wish there was some other way. Judy! 
Anne. I'm sorry. Medicine stops you from dreaming. It's a mercy to keep them out of your dreams, even at the end. Bells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.